Well, good news this morning. We have finally made it to Joseph. Chapters 37 to 50 are all about Joseph. Well, almost all about Joseph. There are two chapters. Chapter 49 is about uh, set aside for Jacob to bless all of his children. And chapter 38, which we are looking at this morning, is actually about Judah. So we get started in Joseph. We get a little... We get a little interruption from Judah. This morning we're looking at the very beginning, though, of Joseph's story. It's followed by this interruption of Judah. And and it's frankly a bit of a rough beginning to Joseph's story. You know that already. Joseph is going to be badly treated by his brothers. Even so, we know that Joseph's story is going to be a gospel story. Joseph looks a lot like Christ to us. So we're willing to put up with the rough start because we know it's going to end so gloriously. We're really looking forward to Joseph. But the story of Judah is one we would like to read really quickly and move on. It's not as, I don't think it's quite as bad as Jacob in chapter 34, you know, if we're, if we're critiquing really, really difficult chapters, but it's going to make us really uncomfortable. In chapter 34, we had to address the sexual sin of Shechem, an outsider in his rape of Dinah. But in here, in chapter 38, we have to address the sexual sin of the insiders, members of the family which means we have to take a closer look and become much more uncomfortable. But we need to take these two stories together. Not because of the events that take place in each of the characters' lives, but because of what God is doing in them, both of them, as he moves his gospel forward. In chapter 37, God is beginning a gospel work in Joseph's life that will point us to Jesus Christ who was betrayed by his own and suffered at the hands of his own, whom he came to save. It's an an up-close look at one man who's a type of Christ. And in chapter 38, God is preserving his gospel promise through Judah's line. His promise of a seed who will bring about his promise of salvation to sinners, ultimately through Jesus Christ. The significance of this chapter, it's bigger. It's bigger than Judah, and it's bigger than Judah and Tamar. Despite their sexual sin, God is at work to preserve the gospel of the seed of the woman promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, so that it will indeed come to pass in the future, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both stories matter to us this morning. We need to see Joseph's suffering before his exaltation, which points us to the cross before the crown, in Jesus' life. This is a pattern in a believer's life. And not be shocked to be called to the same type of life. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And we need to see in Judah and Tamar that sin, sexual sin, is an attack on the gospel itself. But God's gospel cannot be defeated. Because God will not allow our sin to alter his promise of eternal salvation through his son Jesus Christ. So there's a comfort there for us as well. If you would follow along on the sermon outline, you'll see this theme. Jesus assures his disciples that we will be hated by the world because of him. But that he will bring good out of our suffering. Even though... Or even when our suffering is the result of our own sin, the gospel of Jesus Christ will overcome our sin to secure everlasting life. Let me begin by reading chapter 37. I'll go ahead and and begin in verse 1. 
Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with his sons Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought forth a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come. I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I have heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him coming from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life, And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. and Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. 
Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, "Uh, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. These are the generations of Jacob. Indicates that we have just entered the tenth and last section of the book of Genesis. You remember it's broken down into ten sections, each beginning with that. These are the generations of moniker. And it focuses on one particular descendant of Jacob's, his beloved son Joseph. Clearly, Reuben is the firstborn son of Jacob by his wife Leah. But Jacob considers Joseph to be his firstborn, and the one who will receive the blessing of the firstborn because he's the firstborn of his second wife, Rachel, whom he loved. Jacob's blatant favoritism will continue to have a poisonous effect in his family. Now, we're told that Jacob is 17 years old. And and when we read verses 1 to 4, it kind of sounds like everything happened when he was 17. Commentaries on the Hebrew highlight kind of the different verb tenses that are in this passage, though. And, and, and it should read something like this. Joseph is now 17. When he was younger, he helped pasture the flocks of his brothers. And when he was even younger, as a boy, he served his older brothers, particularly the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, the servants. So, so really, it was... It was when Joseph was younger, even, even just as a boy, that he would tattle on his brothers. And some of his tattling was, was just tales. I mean, you can imagine teenage boys, right? You can imagine teenage boys saying and doing a lot of things that they shouldn't be doing or saying when they're out tending the flocks away from dad. I mean, you can imagine them picking on their younger brother, right? I'm the youngest of six. I know the younger brother's plight. I also know the younger brother can be a bit of a pest. You can imagine them picking on their younger brother, daddy's little favorite. And you can imagine Joseph slightly embellishing his tattletales when they got home. Daddy, they did this. Daddy, they said that. Now, the robe of many colors probably wasn't a robe of many colors. I'm sorry, I just crushed somebody. I know it. Commentaries on the Hebrew say it's, it's a long robe. Maybe it's a colorful robe. Its, it's hem goes all the way to the ground. Its sleeves go all the way 
to the wrist, it's not the color that matters, but what the robe represents. It's a lordly robe. It's a robe fit for a prince. Jacob made it for Joseph because he loved Joseph more than all of his other sons. Now, of course, Benjamin, Benjamin's the youngest and born of Rachel, but he's, he's just a toddler. He's not really considered in this. So here's Jacob at age 17, and he's not pasturing the flock with his brothers. He's walking around the house in his little lordly robe, daddy's little prince, and his brothers hated him. Now the text makes it clear that these dreams are given to Jacob from God. I'm sorry, to Joseph from God. And that the repetition of these dreams, there's not just one, there's two, is a confirmation from God that they will come true. By these dreams, God is calling Joseph to serve the Lord as a prince, as a Lord, somehow, some way. And these dreams are a prophecy that will come true. So here comes little Lord Joseph in his princely robe, pleading with his brothers, hear this dream I've just dreamed. You've got to hear this right? You've got to hear my dream. And they can't even stand to speak to him, let alone listen to him, tell them about another dream. Behold, which we interpret, wow, can you believe it? Wow, can you believe it? We were binding sheaves of grain in my dream, and my sheaf rose up, and your sheaves all gathered around and, and bowed down to me. His brothers interpret the dream immediately and rightly. You think you're going to reign over us? You think we're going to bow down to your rule? And they hated him even more. Notice there are two things that cause these brothers to hate Joseph. First is their father's favoritism. Jacob loves Joseph more than them. They hate him for that. But did you notice what the second one is? The second is the work of God revealed in Joseph's dreams. God reveals something about Joseph's future rule over his brothers in these dreams. And they hate that. You see, they're, they're positioning themselves against the gospel. Of course, Joseph's behavior might be a little bit of a contributing factor. God gives Joseph another dream. And we all want to rise up and tell the 17-year-old Joseph, just keep it to yourself. Joseph, this time, would you just zip it? They don't have to know your dream for your dream to come true. So why doesn't Joseph listen to us? Why does he provoke them again? And the deep theological answer is that Joseph is 17. He's just immature. There are two things that Joseph is particularly immature about. First, he doesn't know how to respond appropriately to his brother's growing hatred and evil action towards him. He just doesn't know what to do with that. He's just immature and he needs to learn how to, how to address evil. Second, he doesn't know how to respond appropriately to God's revelation of his future. The work God is setting him apart to do. It's a call. 
Joseph, Joseph, you're, I'm calling you to something great. But he's just too immature to, to really to handle it. He needs to learn. Joseph needs time to learn how to persevere well against evil. And Joseph needs time to learn how to serve God well without boasting. And Joseph is going to get that time. Joseph's context is that he's his father's favorite, which skews his understanding of reality. He gets away with tattling as a boy. He's used to his brothers ignoring him. He learns to do attention-getting things, like acting out his lordly dreams in his coat before them. In Genesis chapter 41, when Joseph interprets Pharaoh's two dreams, he says, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then he continues, the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that these things are fixed by God and God will bring them about shortly. So Joseph has two dreams. They're really one thing. And they will come true. And the two dreams mean the same thing. The dream of the sheaths has an agricultural flavor to it, which is appropriate because Joseph will provide the grain that will save the sons of Israel during the, during the drought. That's the story that's coming, the coming famine. And the next dream has a flavor of royalty. The 11 stars are his brothers, all bowing down to Joseph. The sun and the moon are Jacob and Leah. Joseph's mother Rachel is already dead and buried. And Joseph says that even they are bowing down to him. Joseph tells this dream twice. Did you catch that? Which is a little funny. Uh, first, he tells his brothers. Then I imagine his brothers saying, hey Joseph, that's a, yep, that's a really good dream. You should tell that one to dad. When dad hears the dream, he's not amused. Jacob rebukes Joseph in front of his brothers. You know, he's already, Jacob has already fought off one rebellion, right? One son who wanted him to bow down to him, Reuben, when Reuben tried to take his father's place by lying with Bilhah. He's not going to let any of his sons, not even Joseph, think that he's going to bow down to them. The brothers certainly enjoy Joseph being put in his place by dad. I, I don't know. It may be the only time it happens. It's the only time in Scripture, but they're reveling in this. But Jacob, it says Jacob kept the saying in mind. That's interesting wording. It's the same wording the New Testament used at the birth of Jesus to say that Mary treasured up. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. It's the same phrase. We have an advantage over Jacob. He does not know that this dream will come true. And yet, he does not completely dismiss it. He treasures up the content of Joseph's dream. Now, the celestial images indicate royalty, and they symbolize majesty. People bow down to their ruler. Jacob has indeed positioned his favorite son, Joseph, to receive his blessing and inheritance and to follow him as the next leader of the family. He's already wearing the robe. Remember that in Genesis, Moses is tracing the seed of the woman. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we're tracing the seed of the woman, the promise. Which one of Jacob's sons 
will carry on the promised seed. Joseph is looking like a pretty good candidate. He's looking kingly and princely. In fact, he seems to have a lock on it. Moses has painted Joseph in kingly colors for us to see. For a couple of reasons. One is so that we would see Joseph through this kingly lens. Joseph will ascend to kingly stature in Egypt. Symbolically, he will point us to God's desire for Israel to become a nation and a royal priesthood. Joseph will point us to Jesus Christ, who is our king and great high priest forever, and to the church, whom Jesus declares would be a royal priesthood. More immediately, we need to see what Joseph's brothers see. A king they don't want, and a brother they're jealous of. So the brothers are moving the flock to find fresh grass and water, and they've gone about 50 miles north to Shechem. You remember Shechem? Yes, same Shechem. Then they have to go another another 15 miles or so north to go to Dothan. And they are far from dad's oversight and reach. Jacob, again, is not tending the sheep. He's home with dad, learning more, well, probably a more managerial role over the brothers. So Jacob, Jacob sends his second in command, if you will, to find his brothers and observe their job performance and bring a report back. Well, yeah, Jacob's got a lot of experience in bringing a report back on his brothers. Now, neither Jacob nor Joseph seem to have any idea how much his brothers actually hate him. How evil their plans would actually be against him. It's like sending a sheep out among the wolves. You know, in my head, I imagine the brothers leaving to tend the flocks of Joseph saying, Joseph says, see you, see you guys. You know, and they mumble under their breath, not if we see you first. And they saw him first. They saw him first and they conspired against him. Here comes this dreamer. It's, it's subtle, but they're not identifying Jacob as a dreamer only because he dreams, which he does, but by the content of his dreams. Commentaries on the Hebrew translate their words, here comes the Lord of the dreams. The Lord of the dreams is coming. Here comes little Lord Joseph with his little lordly dreams and his little lordly coat and his bow to me words and his bad reports that he lords over us. And the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah say, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what comes of his dreams. That's a critical statement. Now Reuben, the eldest, has an idea. He orders the brothers not to kill Joseph, not to shed his blood or lay a hand on him, except, of course, to throw him in the pit. But he doesn't tell them his plan. Notice where the quotation marks end in that verse. He tells them all that, but he doesn't tell them the rest. After the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah throw Jacob in the pit, or Joseph in the pit, Reuben, a son of, Reuben, a son of Leah, will rescue him and take him to his father, and win back his father's favor. He'll be the hero. But he'll be the hero at the expense of Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. 
they're the ones he's going to rescue them from. So part of the story is, look what they did to Joseph. Look what I did to Joseph, Dad. Reuben doesn't tell him that part of his little plan, but Moses, the narrator, he tells us. And then apparently, Reuben goes off to tend the flock because he's not around for what happens next. When Joseph arrives, his brothers take his coat, they throw him in the pit. It's a cistern. Uh, There's no water in it. It's been dried out. And then, cool as you like, they sit down and eat lunch. Can you believe it? Hey, guys, what's for lunch? What's in your bag? You, know, you want to trade some Fritos? Or, you know, what's, what do you got there? Is Jacob just silent? 22 years later, in chapter 42, in verse 21, they would admit to one another. Now, they're in Jacob's presence, but they don't know it's Jacob. And they would admit to one another. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother Joseph. In that... We saw the distress of his soul. And we did not listen. Yes, he cried out. Yes, he begged them, don't do this. As they enjoyed their lunch. Look at how cold their hearts are. How callous how hard, how indifferent they are to the cries of mercy from their little brother. Sin does that, doesn't it? It makes us cold and hard-hearted. Closes our ears and our eyes. Now, Judah, another son of Leah, he has an idea. As they enjoy their lunch, a caravan of Ishmaelites, later we're called, told Midianites that are Ishmaelites also, stop by. Judah says, hey, let's sell Jacob into slavery. At least we'll get something. And we can honestly say that we didn't kill him. And they listened to him. Okay, that's a hint. They listened to Judah. So they sell Joseph for an amount of silver, and the Ishmaelites take him to Egypt, and Joseph is gone. Now we will see what becomes of his dreams. Yes, we will. That was the crime. Now here comes the cover-up. Remember, Reuben has missed this entire interaction, and when he returns to the pit he heroic, you know, to heroically rescue Joseph, Joseph's gone. And Reuben is sure that his brothers must have followed through on killing him. And so look at his really compassionate response in verse 30. The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Okay, so, so Reuben is all me, me, me. Not only is Reuben's plan to trick his way back into his father's good graces gone, but as the eldest, Reuben is responsible for the boy. Now he's in even more trouble with Jacob. You see, Moses is showing us something about Reuben. Instead of telling us, he shows it to us, that Reuben the firstborn is impotent as a leader. The brothers dip Joseph's coat in goat's blood, take it to their father, ask him to identify it. Is this your son's robe or not? Wow, that's pretty cold. That's pretty cold. 
Jacob is duped by a goat. Remember that Jacob used a goat to deceive his father Isaac? When Isaac tried to identify Esau, put the goat skins on his arms and the back of his neck. Now Jacob is duped by a goat when he's deceived in identifying Joseph's fate, the blood of the goat on the robe. Yes, Jacob cries. My son is torn in pieces by a fierce animal. The brothers have not only sinned against Joseph, their brother, but they've sinned against Jacob, their father, with their treachery, their deception, and their lies. Jacob is inconsolable in his mourning. His lying sons try to comfort him. Oh, Dad. Oh, Dad. It'll, it'll be, you still have us. You don't have Joseph, but you still have us, Dad. All of his daughters, all of the family tries to comfort him. But he's beyond comforting. He says, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Meaning that Jacob loved Joseph so much that his grieving is so deep that he would weep for him all the days of his life. Really, Jacob? Is there no comfort for Jacob? Jacob, is there no comfort for you anywhere? Is there no one to whom you can turn to for sufficient consolation? You've got to think about that. What about your covenant-making, covenant-keeping God? What about the gospel promises of God? Do you have any hope in God, Jacob? Isn't your love for God greater than your love for your sons, Jacob? Let me switch gears. Has Jacob's favoritism ruined the promise found in Joseph's dreams? Has the hate and jealousy and treachery of these brothers canceled the promise found in Joseph's dreams? Have the flesh-trading Ishmaelites brought an end to the promises of God to Joseph Revealed in his dreams? No. Joseph's dreams contain God's promise to Joseph and the future nation of Israel and their salvation. Moses ends the chapter with, with this glimmer of hope in verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Joseph's not even dead yet. And with that, Moses hits the pause button on Joseph's story and takes up the troubling but clarifying story of Judah. It's troubling because it's filled with sexual sin, which makes us very uncomfortable. When we see God's people sinning, we need to avoid thinking that God is somehow rewarding their sin. That's a, that's a cutoff. When we see God's people sinning, we need to understand that God is not rewarding their sin. Paul, Paul anticipates this mistaken reckoning in Romans chapter 6 
when he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? I mean, when you look at these people in the Old Covenant, time after time after time, forsaking the promises of God and sinning, and yet, in the end, things seem to move forward for them, is God rewarding their sin? No. Paul says, by no means are we to continue sinning. God is not rewarding sin. God will punish all sin. But no matter the sins of mankind, God is willing to keep his gospel promises to sinners. And God is able to bring about his gospel promises to sinners. It's clarifying this story of Judah in that just as we think Joseph may be the one to carry on the line of promise, Spoiler alert, we find out it's Judah. We find out it's Judah. This is not just the story of Joseph. It's actually the story of Jacob, remember? These are the generations of Jacob. Which means this is the story of Israel. Jacob is Israel. It's a big picture, whole people's story, this story about Judah. That's the lens that we want to read it through. As with all of Genesis, it is the story of what God is doing that must capture our attention. That's why this chapter is here, where it is. So let's read chapter 28. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet she bore again, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kesib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, He went up to Timnah, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, He thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. 
And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from this woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent the goat. You did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Well, I'm having just a little bit of fun calling Joseph Little Lord Joseph and Judah Big Bad Judah. Uh, But Big Bad Judah just kind of does what he thinks he wants to do. While Joseph is a slave in Egypt, Judah leaves his father and brothers in Hebron, and he settles in a region of Canaan called Adullam, in a city called Kesib. And he has a new best friend named Hira, who's an Adullamite. All of this is bad. All of this is negative. Remember how Lot left Abraham and settled in Canaan. How Ishmael left Abraham and settled in Canaan. Esau left Isaac and settled in Canaan. Now Judah is heading in the same direction, that is, away from the people of God and the gospel of God to settle with the people in the land and to live with them and among them. So Judah takes a Canaanite wife. We're not told her name, but she bears Judah three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Judah takes a wife, as is his duty, for his first son, Ur. Her name is Tamar. But Ur is wicked in the sight of God, and the Lord puts him to death before his wife Tamar bears him any sons. So there is no lineage. We don't know what evil things Ur did, but we do know that God reserves his right to execute judgment on sinners at any time. 
So Judah tells his second son, Onan, that it is his duty to marry his brother's wife so she can bear a son to carry on the name and the line of Ur. This is the law of leveret marriage. Leveret marriage is given in Deuteronomy chapter 25, but the principle is already in practice here in Genesis. Leveret marriage reflects the everlasting nature of God's covenant promises and the eternality of the gospel. Even death should not end a man's line of offspring under God's eternal covenant. His brother should step in and provide a son so that his name will continue and that he will, by that son, receive an inheritance in the land. You see the covenant continuity that's here. Once it's started by someone under the covenant, it's not supposed to stop. There's not supposed to be a break. And so that's why this law of leveret marriage exists. Though a man die, yet shall he live, is the idea under the covenant. But this does require some sacrifice on the part of the second brother. First, Onan's first wife is predetermined to be Tamar, so no matchmaking. Second, Onan's firstborn biological son will be Ur's firstborn legal son. That son will get Ur's inheritance from his father Judah. But in the absence of that son, Onan would get all of Ur's inheritance from Judah. So, Onan does the math, a little cost-benefit analysis, and he decides that he will cut off his brother's line. He will end Ur's name and end Ur's promised inheritance for his own financial gain. He sounds like his father Judah. Hey, let's at least get some money out of this deal. He marries Tamar and has sex with his wife. Publicly, it appears that Onan does his leveret duty. But privately, Onan practices a simple form of birth control. I'll leave it there so that Tamar will not get pregnant, so that there will be no promised line. Onan wastes his seed and the promise of seed to error. That is what the Lord considered wicked. And so the Lord put Onan to death also. Right about now, Judah's thinking that Tamar is pretty bad luck. Judah has three sons, two of them married Tamar, and both are dead. He has only one son left, Shelah, who is who's not old enough to marry yet. So Judah, because of his honor and his duty to carry out the leveret marriage, he promises Tamar will marry Shelah when he's old enough. Until then, he tells her to remain a widow, but, but go live in your father's house till then. So he sends her away. It's a deception. It's a deception. Father like son. Judah has no intention of letting Shelah marry Tamar and risk losing his only remaining son, his last surviving offspring. For Judah, his duty to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is it's out of sight, out of mind. Go live with your dad. I'll take care of you later. In time, Judah's unnamed Canaanite wife dies. You notice how quickly Judah completes the rituals of mourning. 
in contrast to Jacob, but also in contrast to Tamar, right? He goes through the rituals of mourning. It's all public. He's fine. He moves on, but Tamar can't move on. And so Judah takes a business trip with his friend Hira, the Adulamite. Perhaps this is a little bit of bad company corrupts. What is Judah doing in Canaan anyway? At the same time, Tamar saw, that is, she came to understand that Shelah had grown up and no wedding was going to be scheduled. Tamar has a right to a son to carry on the name in the line of Ur. Judah is responsible to provide a leveret husband. The word leveret just means brother-in-law. A, a, a leveret husband as long as he has sons. Instead, he's trapped Tamar in a perpetual widowhood. She can't do anything. She can't move on or anything. So she sets a trap to get this son from Judah himself. That's what she does. She dresses herself like a prostitute and wears a veil to cover her face like a prostitute and sets a trap for Judah at the, at the entrance or at the crossroads outside of Enaim, which is interesting. It's a little town. The word means to see. It means eyes or to see. But Judah cannot see that this is Tamar because of a veil. Just Moses has all these beautiful ironies in here. I can't even list them all. Judah, being a man who does what he wants, decides to mix a little business with pleasure and unknowingly propositions his own daughter-in-law for sex and they negotiate the payment. Judah promises to send her a goat later, so she requests a pledge now, something for surety that, uh, that she, he'll actually send the goat. Verse 18, so she gave, he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Judah has gotten what he wanted and committed sexual sin. Tamar has gotten what she wanted by committing sexual sin. This is not right. But it also won't thwart God's plans. Judah is completely in the wrong. Tamar has a gospel desire. Offspring. Tamar has a noble pursuit to have that offspring. But what she does is wrong. It's a terrible state of affairs. It's it's not unlike others that we've seen before. When people sin, and yet we understand God is still bringing about his purposes in his world. What Tamar has is the seed of Judah owed her and the proof that he has done it. The things that she asked for, the seal, they're his business seal. They're what he signs documents with. It's carried on a cord. If it was torn off the cord, you could say, well, it was probably stolen. But if it comes with the cord, it means that it was given, and then his staff, which is identifiable for him. They're identifying doc. Give me your passport, your driver's license, and your social security card until you send me the goat, and he does it. Which is a little funny, again. Judah now falls prey to the deception involving a goat. When Judah sends the goat, he finds out that there was not a temple prostitute, and he's not getting his pledge back. Being Judah, he actually commends himself as a man of integrity. 
for having sent the goat. He followed through on his pledge. And he notes that Hira is his witness. At the same time, he doesn't want to press the issue with a further search for the girl because he doesn't want people to know that he's engaged with a prostitute. And he doesn't want people to laugh at him for losing his signet and staff in this illicit deal. Some integrity. Three months later, and you knew that was going to happen, right? Three months later, we see Tamar, and her sexual immorality is now visible. She's pregnant, and without even a question, Judah, self-righteous Judah, orders her burned to death. Better she die than his son Shelah, if he were to marry her. You see, this all has to do with seed, beginning with the seed of the woman promised in Genesis chapter 3, 15. It all has to do with the covenant line. It all has to do with the line of the gospel, eventually leading to Jesus Christ. But Tamar isn't the only one to have her sexual sin exposed. She sends Judah his own signet on a cord and his own staff, revealing that he is the one who lay with her. She's carrying his son. Identify these, Judah. Listen to what Judah identifies in verse 20 in chapter or verse 26. Then Judah identified them and said, "She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah." Huge turning point. If this is not the moment of Judah's conversion, it is the moment of conviction that soon leads to Judah's conversion. He sees his sin. He admits his sin. He confesses his sin. And he's going to repent of his sin. His sin not only against Tamar, his sin against Ur, his sin against the gospel. See, what's hanging in the balance is the gospel seed moving forward in this whole chapter. But from this moment on, whenever we see Judah, he's a changed man. He's a man who has turned aside from Canaan and returned to his fathers and brothers. He's a man willing to take responsibility. He's a man willing to sacrifice himself for his brothers, as we'll see later in Genesis. Tamar has a, a Rebecca-like pregnancy, with twin sons fighting to be born first. Zerah put out his hand, and the midwife tries a little, a little thread around it, but Perez breaches the womb first and breaks through. That's what his name means, breach or breakthrough. Just pops out. All this time, the gospel has been hanging by a thread. It looked like Joseph would be the line of promise, but he was thrown in a pit and then sold into slavery. So Moses turns our attention to Judah, but he's living as a pagan among the Canaanites. He's actively trying to end God's elect line of secession by denying Tamar a son. But it's not just Judah and Tamar who are in peril because of their sexual sin. It's the gospel itself. And we can see how the gospel is at stake in Matthew chapter 1. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. 
have a little bit of little, little Christmas sermon here in Matthew chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the king, and the son of Abraham, the promise. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Jesus is born in the line of King David. Jesus is born the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is what was at stake all along. The gospel line. It was hanging by a thread. Because people are sinning everywhere. And yet it's not too hard for God to bring about his purposes. It's not too hard for God to bring about his gospel in a redeemer who will save sinners from their sin. Let's see. Let's see what will become of Joseph's dreams. Let's see. What will become of God's promises of a redeemer? Let's see. Well, I'm going to do just a little editing in Roman numeral 3 under Jesus and his disciples in our applications. I want to make just two applications. First, you'll be hated and persecuted for the gospel. I'm talking to you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You disciples... And the church, you who call Jesus your Lord and your Redeemer, anyone who will be godly will be persecuted. God has placed enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So it is not only you who will be attacked, but the gospel itself who will be attacked when you're attacked. Do you see the connection? Joseph was vulnerable, wandering through the wilderness, looking for his brothers, Shechem and Dothan. Was Jacob stupid to send him? Probably. Was Joseph naive to go? Yes, but there's another word for naive, innocent. He was just not yet mature enough to understand, one, how to respond to God's call in his life, and two, how to address the evil that confronted him. But he would learn. He would learn through suffering. Just as Christ our Lord was made fit to serve as our great high priest by learning through suffering. We need to remember that Jesus, Jesus sends his disciples out as sheep among wolves. He actually does that. We need to remember the parable of the vineyard in which after sending servant after servant, the master sent his son to collect the debt, which he would eventually collect on the cross. We who serve King Jesus, we're vulnerable. If you think you're bulletproof, you're not. We're vulnerable. And so, so he tells us to be gentle as doves and wise as serpents. We're to think wisely. 
and still act gently. We also need to remember that persecution can come from within the family. Isn't that what we see happening here? Joseph's brothers not only attacked their brother, but also his dreams, right? We're going to cancel those dreams. They're never going to happen. Hatred from within the church, or, or let's say this, indifference. Indifference within the church is never just against one person. It's against the gospel. It's an attack on the love of Christ we have for one another, which is a direct attack on Christ and his gospel. You will be hated and persecuted, but you will be blessed for standing for Christ. If you will not be ashamed of him, he will not be ashamed of you. Second, the gospel for which we are persecuted is the gospel that saves. I mean, if there's a hill to die on, it's this one. It's the, it's the hill on which to die in which you cannot die. Not one of us is righteous. Not one. Tamar is more righteous than Judah because Tamar desires the things of God. His eternal promise of a name and an offspring and an inheritance. Those are Old Testament signs of saving faith. But she was a sinner. Yes, there's no one righteous, not even one. But she desired the gospel. And it is the gospel that Judah comes to believe. And it is through Judah, the father of Perez by Tamar, that God chose to fulfill his promises of the gospel in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that saves. The gospel in these chapters, not only 37, but 38. <clears throat> Joseph's dreams of Israel's Redeemer are alive. They're alive later because the psalmist in Psalm 105 writes about them. Psalm 105 verse 17, God has sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. It continues in verses 42 to 45, for God remembered his holy promise, so he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, that they might keep his statutes, observe his laws. Praise the Lord, the psalmist says. You see, God is working. He is overruling sin and bringing his people out with joy. Christ is bringing people out of the misery of their own sin and into his presence with joy and singing. Hallelujah. Remember Reuben? Before we move on back into, into Joseph's story next week, let's remember Reuben just for a moment. In Genesis chapter 42, okay, again, 22 years into the future from here, when the brothers come before Joseph in Egypt, but they don't know it's Joseph because they think Joseph's dead, Reuben recounts to his brothers saying, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Reuben recognizes what they'd done for 22 years. This has been the weight 
on Reuben's sinful conscience. The anguish over his sin against Joseph and his father and against the gospel. And then in verse 37, when they tell Jacob that they have to take, they go back to their father, right, and they have to take Benjamin to Egypt, and Reuben pledges to his father Jacob, because Jacob doesn't want to let Reuben go. Reuben pledges to his father Jacob, kill my two sons if I do not bring Benjamin back to you. Something's changed in Reuben. He says, put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. The gospel that gets persecuted is the only gospel that saves. It saves Judah. Selfish Judah. It saves Reuben. Powerless Reuben. Reuben's a changed man. Reuben's a repentant man. Reuben sees his sin and confesses his sin and repents of his sin and seeks to serve the request of his brother Joseph so that Israel can live. Reuben is exercising faith. Is there no comfort for Jacob who wrestled with God and prevailed? Jacob needs to exercise faith. Where can you go? Where can you go when your conscience is in anguish? Where can you go to find forgiveness for your sins? Where can you go to find hope for today's challenges and a fixed certainty for your tomorrow? Turn to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Place yourself in Jesus' hand. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. Look to Jesus, and you will find eternal comfort, forgiveness of sins, and everlasting life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it for us, that we might learn from it. We pray that you would press this word deep into our hearts, that it might be worked out in our love for you and our words and actions towards others. Gospel words and gospel actions. For your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen.